Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back into episode number 13 of The Stitch with Grant Mitchell. And guys, it's an awesome time to be a sports fan. I know that's how I started off last show, but we've got so much going on. Of course, we had the banger Friday playoff games in the NBA. We've got the NHL playoffs, and we got some NFL draft. Now, I gave you guys some of my best bets to look at in the NFL draft. Not a bunch of them hit, but a couple of them did. We had some surprises, and we also had some things that were pretty expected. And we're going to get into all of that and a whole lot more. But, of course, we have to start it off with my favorite sport, my favorite thing to talk about the NBA playoffs. And the first game that we saw on Friday was the Sacramento Kings at the Golden State Warriors. On the road in San Francisco, Kings facing elimination down 3-2. They go in and they win 118-99. to That is the biggest win in this series. And it is the biggest home loss with a chance to clinch a playoff series in Warriors franchise history. Now let me just start right there. For everybody that was saying the Kings' lack of experience was going to come to bite them, they just went on the road to the defending champions building and handed them their biggest closeout loss in franchise history. So I think right away we can get rid of that whole experience excuse because what have we seen so far in this series? The Kings stepped up to the plate in game one. They stepped up to the plate in game two. Game three, they lost convincingly. They never really had a chance to step up. Game four, they brought themselves back. They gave themselves a real chance. And Harrison Barnes ended up with the ball in his hands in the for the final shot. Now, I wouldn't put I wouldn't put Harrison I wouldn't want Harrison Barnes shooting the ball in that situation. But I understand it was the right basketball play to get him the ball. Game five, the Warriors go on the road and they win. Now they were two and twenty two on the road against teams with that were five hundred or better. And one of those wins was against the Kings at the end of the season when their starters didn't play, when Monk didn't play, Fox didn't play, Sabonis didn't play. So really, only one win all season against teams that were, above, again, 500 or better. So that was very impressive for them. It shouldn't be impressive. This is what you should expect from the best dynasty ever, aside from the Bulls, and from the uh, most dominant team in the last in the last decade, the defending champions. It shouldn't be impressive to go beat a team on the road that hasn't won a playoff game, hasn't been to a playoff game in 16 years, but that's the point we're at with, with these Warriors. But they then lose on their home court, and as terrible as they were on the road, they were excellent on their home court. So huge, huge win for the Kings. De'Aaron Fox had 26 points and 11 assists. He got off to a very slow start. He only had four points and four turnovers in the first quarter in a couple of minutes. But he was huge in this down the stretch. He was also playing excellent defense on Steph Curry. Not because he was chasing him around the perimeter. He was, but that's not why. It's because of the discipline that he showed not to foul, not to jump on the closeouts. Just really great stuff from Fox. Malik Monk also had 28 points and seven rebounds off the bench. And guys, Malik Monk is everything that Jordan Poole should be. If you're the Warriors, you paid Jordan Poole $130 million last year. And now you're playing him fewer minutes per game than you played him in the last playoffs. I mean, watching Jordan Poole is like it's like a human trying to play Twister on a basketball court. He's totally out of control. I never have any faith that he's going to make any of his shots anymore. And honestly, the Kings are starting to not honor his presence. You've seen him going under on screens, or you've seen they've seen him them run him off the three point line. But they're not having the big man step up. They're just leaving him open for the mid range. They're letting him drive to the rim because they know that he's going to make mistakes, and they are capitalizing on them now. Jordan Poole can absolutely get hot and go for 30 points in a game one of these games. But if he's shooting you in the foot for three or four of the other games, that's a really big problem. And now you're going into game seven, 
and you thought you thought you uh, you thought you fa- you cracked the code by inserting Jordan Poole into the starting lineup, but he is demonstrably making this team worse. And Draymond Green, I know he didn't score a lot of points in the last game, and he had some foul trouble, but he was awesome in Game Four, in Game Five, excuse me. And you've got to feel like with his experience, you want him back in the starting lineup. So I would not be surprised at all if the Kings opt, or excuse me, the Warriors opt to add Draymond back into the starting lineup for game seven, especially going on the road. You're going to need your emotional leader and what is going to be a raucous Kings home crowd. So that's going to be something that we're going to have to pay attention to. But while the Warriors have coaching adjustments that they need to make, the Kings and Mike Brown, the first ever unanimous coach of the year, he outfoxed Steve Curran in game six. I mean, he completely changed his rotation. He was getting Sabonis to sit more. Now, Sabonis was in foul trouble, so he was also forced to sit more, but Mike Brown was slower to bring him back in. Davion Mitchell no longer mimics Steph Curry's minutes aside from the opening lineup. He wasn't coming in to stick to uh, face guard him. Instead, they had Terrence Davis come out there. Now, Davis did foul out of the game, but he played some really good defense, and he was also an added offensive threat. Now, Davion Mitchell has been knocking down some threes, but you still have to honor Davis more than you have to honor Mitchell. And that was stretching the Warriors' defense out. And then Trey Lyles is the small ball five. Yeah, Kevon Looney was killing them on the glass again, but he was killing them when Sabonis was playing and when Alex Len was playing. So Mike Brown said, you know what? Looney's going to do what he does. Why don't we get another floor spacer out there? Why don't we get another creator, somebody who can score the basketball? Because you're not going to beat the Warriors with defense. The, the Warriors, yes, they've had, they had great defense throughout their, the, their dynastic years, but they always had that ability to take over and score eight points in 40 seconds whenever they wanted. The Kings have been able to match that them in that series, but then they lost game five because they didn't quite have that element. So Mike Brown, again, very intelligent decision, bringing more scorers out there. Um, uh, what else do we got here on the docket here? Uh, the Warriors transition defense. Yes, that was another thing. Sorry, wrote down a couple of notes that I wanted to talk about. The Warriors transition defense after baskets was just terrible. I mean, De'Aaron Fox was legitimately going one on four down the court and he was beating all four of the Warriors to the basket off of made off of made hoops. I, if you're Steve Kerr, you've got to be ripping your hair out because between turning the ball over and the fouls that the, the Kings drew a bunch of charges and then that lack of transition defense, it's just basic coaching principles that you're taught when you go to middle school basketball camps. And the Warriors didn't execute on that. And it ultimately kind of prevented them from even having a chance to come back in that game. Game six, Clay was trying for a little bit, but he wasn't super efficient. Did, he made some shots, but I still wouldn't say he had his three-point shot. So that game six clay uh, narrative, I'm not saying it's put to rest because he's you can't deny what he's done, but it didn't really play uh, play a difference here. And now let's look ahead at the final game, game seven. Look, we're going to the Kings' home floor. The Warriors have been terrible on the road all season. The Kings have been better than the Warriors in this series. Their best player is injured, and yet it's tied 3-3. The Warriors... Thought they had the advantage because they went on the road. Well, guess what? The Kings go and went on the road with their backs against the wall. They get the largest win of the series. They've scored more points than the Warriors have scored in this series. I think they've answered more challenges than the Warriors have. And I think Mike Brown has coached a better series than Steve, than Steve Kerr has. So the Kings have been better in every way, yet they're still underdogs on their home court. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm taking the Kings plus 1.5, and I'm taking the Kings money line because we are going to light that beam not not we i'm not a kings fan but the kings are going to light the beam the kings are going to move on to the next round of the playoffs and they will face the los angeles lakers now if you didn't see the lakers game 
you missed. I'm surprised they were able to put it on television. I thought it was illegal. It would be illegal to put public murder out on the national airways. But hey, ESPN, they allowed it. So I'll ride with it. The, the, the Grizzlies went into game six. Desmond Bain had promised we're coming back to our home court. Dylan Brooks has been quiet lately, but we know what he's saying. LeBron's, LeBron's, you know, I don't respect anybody until they drop 40 on me. I mean, LeBron had 37 points and eight threes on him last year, but I guess that's not good enough for him. They go in there and they get absolutely smoked. They get steamrolled. It's it's not even a game. I mean, the Lakers win that one 125 to 85. And that was the most dominant performance of the playoffs that any team has put together so far. Look. I know it's easy to pick on the Lakers because Anthony Davis has a fleeting motor. I know that Anthony Davis and LeBron are both banged up a lot. I know LeBron looks really old in these playoffs, but there is not one team in basketball that wants to play them. They have the best record in the NBA since the All-Star break. You combine the regular season and the postseason, they have the best record. They're top three in net rating. They've been one of, if not the best defensive teams in the playoffs. And look, they're getting all of this done with LeBron being horrible on offense. If you get 25 points from him, it's a miracle. He shot like, what he shoot, 17% from three in that series, the worst of his career. Now, the Grizzlies, the Grizzlies' defense is their thing. They, had, they held opponents to the lowest field goal percentage in the regular season. So maybe you didn't expect them to, to clamp LeBron and the Lakers up that badly, but you expected a good defensive effort. You look ahead, and they play either the Kings or the Warriors in the next round, regardless of who wins. It's going to be one of those two. Both those teams cannot play defense. They just can't. And on top of that, their interior defense is the weak point. So I don't think Anthony Davis is going to have these 12-point games again. I think he could easily average 30. I think him and LeBron could both average 30 in the next series. And I, I, I'm i going to say it right now. I think they're going to win that series. Now, maybe I update that after watching a, a game or two and, and evaluating what's going on. But my, my thoughts right now are that the Lakers are going to win that series in five or six games. And that's going to put them in the Western Conference Finals. And at that point, you look at the other teams in the bracket – I think they have their reason for optimism against both of them, but we're going to save that for a little bit because we're going to talk about them later on. Let's get back on track with this Lakers Grizzlies game. I mean, everybody on the Lakers was terrible, or excuse me, everybody on the Grizzlies was terrible. Santi Aldama was the leading scorer. That really should say it all. In an elimination game in the playoffs on the road, Santi Aldama is your leading scorer. He had 60 points, so good game for him. But John Morant, terrible. Jaron Jackson Jr., terrible. Desmond Bain, terrible. Dylan Brooks, terrible. Xavier Tillman, not terrible, but not noticeable. Anthony Davis. I really, I'm really, I'm really trying to figure out how I want to qualify this. Not qualify, but how I want to rake it. Because, you know, I, I wasn't alive to watch Hakeem Olajuwon play. And I, I remember some Shaq games, but not very vividly. You know, I didn't see David Robinson. I didn't see, I didn't see Gary Payton. I didn't see Michael Jordan. I didn't see some of these all-time defenders, but what I can say is, in of the last five or ten years, I think Anthony Davis played the best defensive game that I've ever seen. I mean, the Grizzlies, they just couldn't score. There was nothing they could do. He had 14 rebounds and five blocks, and all that's great. But his closeouts, his contests, his switching, the Lakers switching, by the way, was phenomenal in that game. The Grizzlies shot 11 of 41 from two-pointers on two-pointers at, at the end of the third quarter, and Anthony Davis didn't return in the fourth. So when Anthony Davis left the game, the Grizzlies were shooting 11 of 41 from two, not from three. 
That's what you expect on a bad three-point shooting night. No, the Grizzlies shot a better percentage from three than from two because they were so terrified of Anthony Davis that they couldn't get anything done. It was just remarkable. And then you've got LeBron and Allison Reeves coming with help side blocks and Rui Hachimura's getting poster dunks. D'Angelo Russell goes for 31, a playoff career high. First time in his career he shot over 50% from the field on the playoffs, which is worrying, but it's still career high, 31 points. And Darvin Ham, Darvin Ham, got to give you credit, man. I think your rotations have been very questionable at points throughout the season. Not as bad as Frank Vogel's were after the championship year. Frank Vogel just could not figure that thing out. But Darvin Ham, he got it right. He, he benched Troy, Troy Brown Jr., who I think is the next man up in the rotation if they expand at one. But they took him out of the game. They took Malik Beasley out. And, boy, Beasley – Beasley's one of the one of the bigger disappointments of, of that whole of the last couple months, honestly, because the Lakers couldn't shoot threes and they brought Beasley in to do just that. Now they found out how to shoot threes without him, but he he, he can't even get on the floor anymore because the shot is so off. But guys off the bench, Hachimura, Schroeder, and then Wenyan Gabriel. He came in for a couple short stints when Anthony Davis went out. Now, I don't know if Wenyan has a place in the next series or again, in these playoffs entirely, to be honest. But it was it was a smart move. You kept your size out there. You kept somebody who's going to give you effort, defensive intensity. Troy Brown Jr. gives you somebody who's a little too light to be playing down against the Jaron Jacksons of the world. Also, speaking of defensive intensity and speaking of Jaron Jackson Jr., LeBron's defense throughout the series was excellent. He was guarding Jaron Jackson for a lot of it. And I don't, I don't, I don't know if – I don't know if LeBron is still injured – I don't know if he's trying to conserve his energy moving forward because he is old as hell. I don't know if the if the game plan was for him to focus in on defense because the Lakers knew it was going to be a low-scoring series. Well, LeBron was awesome on Jaron Jackson Jr. And like I said after the first couple of games, Triple J had not gotten into foul trouble, but look at his history. That's That wasn't going to stick around. Lo and behold, the next few games, he ended up getting himself into foul trouble. Grizzlies ultimately see their way out of the playoffs. Dylan Brooks – one of the biggest cowardly villains of all time, honestly, at least in recent NBA history. And look, Dylan Brooks, don't play this victim card. Don't say the media is making me a villain. No, that's not what it is. You literally said, I am Dylan the villain. You said, I poke bears. John Morant, you know, that's not you, but that's your teammate saying, we don't run from smoke, we go up the chimney. You know, we're good in the West, all that stuff. Desmond Bain, I promise we're coming home for game seven in Memphis. And then Dylan Brooks leaves before the media is even allowed to enter the the locker room. Look, I know. I know you played a bad series. I know you probably don't have the most confidence right now. I know you're wondering if you're even going to be back in Memphis next year because I can guarantee you the front office thinking, wow, if we had an OG Ananobi, if we had a if we had a Mikhail Bridges, if we had a Cam Johnson in that spot that Brooks was in, we probably would have won this series. So I know you've got all those thoughts running through your head. But you can't be uh, uh, I'm not going to say the word, but you can't be a something and you can't be, you can't be just, you can't be so infuriating. You can't be running around looking to instigate all the time. And then you can't back out when it gets, when you have to face the music. It's just not how it works. So two thumbs down for Dylan Brooks. You got to be better than that. You got to hold yourself accountable and you got to be responsible for your actions. That's, that's how it goes. Now let's move on to the betting picks. For the coming games. We're going to start it off with the Denver Nuggets versus the Phoenix Suns. 
Now, guys, I'm going to be honest. I don't really love looking at betting trends for the first games of playoff series and for the playoffs for the most part, to be honest. I prefer to actually analyze what have we seen from these teams. And what we have seen is that both teams want to play an eight-man rotation. That's what they've been doing mostly in the playoffs. Now, the Phoenix Suns, a lot has been made, especially by me, about their lack of bench depth and productivity. They only got 14 and a half points off the bench in the first round. That's terrible. Their, their starters were having to do so much of the heavy lifting. But the Nuggets only got 20 and a half points off the bench. Sure, that's six points more per game. Is every game going to be about a six-point differential between the starters? I don't think so. I think the Suns starters are more than six points better than the Nuggets starters. So I don't think that the Nuggets are going to have – the Clippers were able to hang around in that series and take a chunk of flesh off of the Suns because they were getting so much off of the bench. That's not going to be able to happen for the Nuggets. Now, what I will say about Denver is that Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray shot 43% from three in the opening round. That is probably I, – I would say, I don't want to say it's unrealistic. It's almost necessary for them to have to do that again just for them to keep pace with this Phoenix offense. Because Phoenix looks like they just can't be slowed down. That truly is how it looks. Their offense looked terrible. I'll say that. The ball movement isn't good. They don't run a whole lot of actions. But their ability to find mismatches off the pick and roll and just score in isolation, it's, it's second to none. And that's what got them the first round, win, first round series win. Now, another thing that the Suns have going for them is that Jokic, the two-time reigning MVP, first of all, he said in a quote, how do you stop the Suns pick and roll? Pray. I don't want to hear that from my MVP. I just don't. I don't want to hear it from the two-time MVP. But regardless of his title, we all know Jokic is a horrible defender. Nobody in the NBA gave up more points on layup attempts than Jokic in the NBA this season. Sure, he's on the court a lot more than other interior defenders. I get that. But you think Anthony Davis has given that up? You think Giannis? You think Embiid? You think any of these other big men who have been in the MVP conversation? No. It's just not happening. So, Here's what's going to happen. The Nuggets are not going to switch Jokic on the pick and roll onto the perimeter because why would you want to leave Jokic to go dance with Durant and Booker and Chris Paul? So what's going to happen is Jokic is going to be sinking into drop coverage, and I'm assuming that the Nuggets are going to have KCP or Bruce Brown, whoever the primary ball cover is. I assume they're going to try to run the Suns off of the three-point line because we know how dangerous they are when they get hot. So that's just going to funnel them into the mid-range. And is Jokic going to step up to contest that? Maybe, but I think he's going to be dropped off too far, and I think that's going to open up a lot of mid-range looks for the Suns, and that's exactly what they want to get. That was the problem that the Clippers ran into when they had Zubats and Plumlee on the floor. And, of course, when the Clippers went small and they tried to switch everything, they just didn't have the bodies to do it. Denver, they have even fewer bodies. I mean, look at the bench. You've got Christian Braun, who is a nice young player, but he's not somebody that you want guarding Kevin Durant on an island in the playoffs. And then the rest of the bench just gets worse from, from that respect. So I don't, I think the Suns have a clear offensive advantage in this series. Also, the Suns and the Nuggets match up twice after the Suns got Kevin Durant and after he returned from his injury in the regular season. The Suns won both of those games. Now, they were both at home, and this is at altitude. This is in Denver where the Nuggets were 34-7 and in the regular season. So, yes, they get some bonus points for that. But let's go back to Kevin Durant. What is, what is his record in his last 10 trips to Ball Arena? That's where the Nuggets play in Denver. He's 7-3. and three. So there's just so much going for the Suns here. 
Devin Booker has also been the best player in the playoffs, second best. Jimmy Butler has been the best. But Devin Booker has been the second best in the playoffs. He averaged 37, six assists, and five rebounds in the opening series. Kevin Durant was scoring 30, and he was an afterthought because Devin Booker was shooting over 60% from the field. I mean, you just can't stop that. I, I like I like Phoenix in this game, and I like Phoenix in this series, guys. You can get Phoenix for plus three and a half in game one. I'm going to be betting that, and I'm also going to be betting them on the money line. Another thing, actually, that I forgot to mention, let's look at clutch defensive rating. Now, I love clutch ratings because it really tells me who's stepping up when the money's at the center of the table. What do we know about the Suns? They can hunt and find their shot pretty much whenever they want which is why they are so lethal, especially in the clutch situations. Denver was 12th of 16 teams in the first round in clutch defense in defense as far as defensive rating goes. So I really don't like that. Again, I'm going to go with the Suns plus three and a half, and I'm going to take them on the money line. I I understand why they're not favored, but I, I personally, if I'm making my sports book, I would favor them, and I'm definitely be hammering them on that line. And then the other game that we've got coming up here. We've got the New York Knicks versus the Miami Heat. Now, these teams do not like each other. Not so much the modern teams. I mean, I'm not saying they're best friends, but it's really the history of the rivalry, the older generations that don't like one another. So it's very cool that we're going to get to see that reincarnated half the games in Madison Square Garden and then the other half of the games in a less than exciting Heat arena, but against the Heat team that has the Heat culture. They're hard-nosed. They want to fight for everything they get. Jimmy Butler at the head of that snake. That's going to be really cool to see. Now, this is going to be an interesting series. It's interesting to analyze because in the first round, both teams played in ways they are not going to play in this series because the Knicks shot 43% from the field and 28% from three. I don't think they're going to be that horrible because that is horrific. Now, I know they were playing against the Cavaliers team that had the slowest pace of play in the NBA and the best defensive rating in the NBA. So can they get some leniency? Sure. But 43 and 28 is unacceptable no matter who you're playing. So I don't think they're going to be that bad. On the other side of the coin, we've got the Heat, who shot 52% from the field against the Bucs, who are a top three defensive team. So we've completely flipped that script on its head. They shot 52% from the field. That was the best in the playoffs. And they shot 45% from three, also the best in the playoffs. Now the Heat could not buy a basket from three-point land in the regular season. They were one of they, they were one of the teams that struggled the most with shooting threes. And all of a sudden, these injuries to Oladipo and to uh, Tyler Hero, they've opened up the rotation. And I was talking about this on last episode. But what it's done, strangely, is it's forced the reintegration of Duncan Robinson. And having him on the court, even if he didn't have his rhythm for such a long time, although he seems to have found it now because his – he had a 94% true shooting percentage in the last round. That's just mind-blowing stuff. But the defenses have to honor him, and they have to sometimes commit two bodies just to stopping him if he's coming off a pin down or a, a mismatch, a screen, whatever. And then you look at Jimmy Butler. Look what he was able to do in that first round. He was averaging 38 a game. It clearly opened up the floor for him. And Bam out of bios, getting his usual stuff. Now, Bam wasn't great to start the playoffs, but he had a triple-double in the closeout game against the Bucs. We've seen Caleb Martin have huge performances. We've seen Kyle Lowry have huge performances. And Kevin Love, his ability also to stretch the floor, has just sort of morphed this offense on its head. Now, Eric Spolstra is also the best coach in the NBA, in my humble opinion. I think him versus Tom Thibodeau is just 
it's a mismatch of epic proportions, but I can't deny that the Knicks players buy into Tom Thibodeau's ethos. What's going to be interesting for me to watch is how Bam handles taking on Julius Randle and Mitchell Robinson almost at the same time on the boards because Kevin Love was once a prolific rebounder, but he doesn't want to get in there and bang with those guys anymore. So Bam's going to have to be huge on the glass for those guys. Now, Randall was off his game. He only averaged 15 and 7 in the first round. Jalen Brunson really carried them. And as much as I love and respect Jalen Brunson, I think that the Heat have the type of defense that is going to cause problems for him. Now, I I kind of thought that about the Cavs, but not as confident as I am in the Heat. So it's going to be an interesting situation. We're going to see the Knicks regress to the mean as far as coming up, and we're going to see the Heat regress to the mean coming down. And then those are very thin margins in between there. So let me try to wrap this up here. This is going to be the loudest that Madison Square Garden has been in a decade, maybe longer. The Miami Heat also operate better when they are the hunted versus the hunters. Excuse me, the hunters versus the hunted. And I think right now the Heat are the hunted. Their backs aren't up against the walls. They're not in the spot they want to be where it's the weight of the world on their shoulders. So I think the Knicks, even though they're better on the road than they are at home, which makes no sense, especially in a place like Madison Square Garden, I think the Knicks are going to win game one. I'm going to have to think long and hard about if I'm going to lay the four points because I think this is going to be very close. But my first indication is I would be able to go with the Knicks minus four. I do think the Heat are going to win this series. That's my early prediction. And guys, look, I will update that prediction as we go through the playoffs. I'm not somebody who makes one prediction and then sticks to it no matter what they see. If I see evidence if I have findings that tell me the Knicks are going to win the series, I will let you know. I'll be transparent. But right now, I believe Knicks win and cover minus four in game one, but the Heat come back to win the series. That's how I see it shaking out. And that's going to do it for the NBA talk. Let's move on over to the NFL draft. What an awesome event that's being held in Union Station in Kansas City. I love the integration of the players and the fans, and I know this isn't the first time they've done that, but it was just so cool to see, especially that kid, the the poor Jets fan. I mean, the guy has cancer. That's not enough. You have to make him a Jets fan, but they have, they have promised this year they got Aaron Rodgers. Cena's energy on the stage was just awesome. Very cool to see. And unsurprisingly, the first overall pick was Bryce Young to the Carolina Panthers. Now, Bryce Young is in an interesting situation for a first overall draft pick because most first overall picks don't step into spots where it greatly behooves them. It greatly benefits them as far as helping them mature and achieve success. The Panthers are actually going to be a decent landing spot for him because they have Adam Thielen. They have DJ Chark. Sure, those guys may be one spot higher on the depth chart than they should be, but they're solid players who have produced in this league. They have uh, Hayden Hurst at tight end, who's a very reliable pass-catching tight end. And then they have Miles Sanders at running back, and he just made the Pro Bowl last season. The offensive line also gave up the fifth-fewest sacks in football last year. And you combine all of that under the knowledge of Frank Reich, who maybe flamed out in Indiana, but we saw what he did early in his career then. We saw what he did with the Eagles. He's able to bring the best out of these younger quarterbacks. So I think Bryson's actually going to have a pretty decent season. Now, this is a very winnable division. You got the Saints, you got the Bucks, you got the Falcons. My pick is the Saints to win that division. I think they've got more talent top to bottom, and I think they have the best quarterback right now from what we know. I mean, Bryce Young might be the best quarterback in the division by the end of the year, but from what we know right now, it's Derek Carr. So I still like the Saints in there, but I think the Panthers are actually going to be pretty fun to watch. And I also like some of the other pickups they had in the second and the third round, in the fourth round. 
Um, obviously, I'm recording this on the third day of the draft, but well ahead of it. So we'll see how that roster finalizes itself. But Panthers are going to be pretty decent. They're going to be fun to watch. But while Bryce Young went first overall, Will Levis did not have the uh, he did not have the fairy tale draft day that he envisioned because. First of all, the cameras, with, with, with the major networks, they got to stop doing this. They got to stop putting the cameras on the guy who's slipping in the draft every time his name doesn't get called. It's it's bullying. It's unfair. Like, the guy feels bad enough. There's no need to humiliate him pub- publicly. But Will Levis ends up getting te- taken. I'm stumbling over my words here. Will Levis ends up getting taken with the second pick in the second round, and he's going to the Tennessee Titans now. While Bryce Young is stepping into a situation that's going to help his growth and development, I don't necessarily think that's what's going to happen in Tennessee. I think Tennessee is sort of wandering aimlessly as a franchise. Derrick Henry is your best player, but he's a running back in a passing league, and he broke his foot a couple of years ago. And then your starting quarterback, Ryan Tannehill, you don't really know what to do with him because if you let him go, you downgrade, but you also can't win anything with him. You've proven that. Malik Willis, you drafted on day two of the draft last year to be the new quarterback of the future, but he looked horrible every time he got on the field. The receivers aren't good. The line isn't great. You've got some nice defensive pieces, but you've got some that are really bad. Vrabel is a very good coach, so I think as long as you have him, you're going to be competitive. I think they can win. I'll say that their their floor is probably around seven wins. I'm not saying they're going to make the playoffs, but Vrabel's going to get some wins on the board. So I think this was a good spot for Levis to go, ultimately, as far as the Titans and the recalibration of their franchise. But are they going to be successful this season? No. Are they going to be successful the next season? No. And do we know a whole lot about Will Levis? Not really. I mean, he had a decent completion percentage in college, but a quarter of his targets were behind the line of scrimmage. He turned the ball over at not an alarming rate, but way more than you want him to. His touchdown-to-interception ratio was less than 2-1. to I mean, Kentucky doesn't have the best players in the world, and you're going against a bunch of SEC defenses, but – You're going against NFL defenses now, and you're in a similar situation where your receivers aren't the best, your running back might be on his way out of town, and your line isn't the best. So that's going to be interesting to monitor. I think think the Titans almost had to do it there. If you're going to let a guy who was rumored to be the number one pick in the draft on Reddit, if you're going to let him slip into the second round, then sure, it's a no-brainer. Go ahead and pick him up. But I wouldn't be totally confident in him being that guy to move forward with. I think the Titans might have to invest another quarterback pick eventually in the future. My most puzzling move of the NFL draft so far, B. John Robinson, eighth overall to the Atlanta Falcons. Look, B. John is awesome. He had he had 1,600 yards and 18 touchdowns his final year at Texas. He's six feet, 225 pounds. He's going to step into the NFL and immediately become a top 10 running back in the league. Might finish the year as a top five back in the league. He's awesome. This has nothing to do with him. This has everything to do with the Falcons. What are you doing? You had, you had one of the best rushing attacks in the NFL last year. Tyler Algier just broke a Falcons franchise rookie record. He rushed for over 1,000 yards. Why are you getting a running back? You could use a quarterback. You could use a corner. You could use line help. You could get more. You could get a tight end or receivers. You can get anything in the world except for a running back, and it would make sense. But no. The Falcons, they take a running back. I, I just don't understand it. Like, I'm, I'm being serious. You could get a tight end, even though you have Kyle Pitts, who's a generational talent, because you're just lining them up to block all the time. I mean, get get a, get a, get a lineman and play him at tight end, and that makes more sense than getting B. John Robinson. And, again, Robinson is awesome. He's awesome. 
He's amazing. He's my favorite to win Offensive Rookie of the Year. We're going to talk about that at the end of the show. But the pick itself just doesn't make any sense. Now, picks that do make sense, Jalen Carter, one pick later to the Philadelphia Eagles at number nine. My God. Now, I wasn't there that night. And I'm not talking. I'm not researching. So I'm not talking to people. I'm not on boots on the ground. I don't know what's going on with the character issues, so I'm just not going to address them. I'm going to assume that teams did their due diligence and they found out what they had to find out. Let's just talk about Jalen Carter, the player. I know the quarterback is the most important position in the game, but if you remove that importance of the position and just look at who is the best football player at their position, Jalen Carter was the best player in the draft. Now, he's not a sack artist, but they don't need him to be. If In case you missed it, the Eagles – had 70 sacks last year. That was two off the all-time record, the 84 Chicago Bears. And it was 15 more than the team with the second most sacks in the NFL last season. Carter's going to go in there, and he's going to pair up with all of his Georgia teammates, the Nicobe Deans, the Jordan Davises, and the other guys that they picked up in this draft, the Nolan Smiths, everybody. That whole Eagles front seven is going to be a Georgia Bulldogs eventually. But him and Jordan Davis in the middle. Good freaking luck running the ball. I mean, the Eagles gave up the second fewest rushing yards per game last season, and they're going to dwarf that this season. They might give up less than 70 rushing yards a game this season. There's not going to be anywhere to go. The Eagles, whoever they get, they need to sign a starting running back. I just wrote my my uh, power rankings, offensive and defense for the NFL. And I wrote, I wrote the defense before the draft, which is a shame. I had the Eagles at seven. I would have to look at how the other teams shaped up. In my mind, I would probably put the Eagles up at around four, three or four. And then the offense, I also had the Eagles at seven. That was purely because they didn't have a starting running back. I said in my analysis, the very moment they started signing running back, they vaulted in the top three. The other two teams up there were, the, were unsurprisingly the Chiefs and the Bengals. But getting off track here, the Eagles, they're, they're really good in every facet of football. And they, I feel like they've got to be second in line to be the Super Bowl favorite. Now, I know it usually goes the Super Bowl champion is the favorite for the next year and the runner-up is the second favorite, sure. But we always we know that's nonsense a lot of the times. It just so happens that that's how the sports books can get early traction on the books. That's, that's not how it actually shapes up. But this year, I genuinely think you have to put the Chiefs favorite and you have to put the Eagles second favorite because their roster composition is just incredible. Another pick that I loved, Quentin Johnston to the Los Angeles Chargers at 21. I know you have Keenan Allen. I know you have Mike Williams, but they're both getting older. They're both injured all the time. Johnston has a rare blend of ability because he's big and tall and he can high point the ball, but he's also very fast and he can line up pretty much anywhere on the field. You can put him in the slot if you want to. And he looks like an X receiver, but he has the quickness and the shiftiness to get to free himself up in the middle of the field. I think it's going to be a huge addition for them, that West Coast offense. And Justin Herbert, you want to get your young gunslinger of a quarterback, someone that he can grow and mature with. And again, Keenan Allen, Mike Williams are great, but you want to get that young guy in there who they can grow with together. I mean, we saw Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs. We've seen Justin Jefferson and Kirk Cousins isn't young, but he's not old exactly. We've seen Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase. It's that same sort of phenomenon. I think Johnson is going to be amazing. I think it's going to make it easy for the Chargers to move off of one of Allen or Williams or both in the next couple of years. And I think that was just a very savvy pick. And another pick that I loved, Brian Branch going to the Detroit Lions at 45. This is somebody coming from an Alabama defense as a defensive back that could have gone in the first round. 
And if you're the Lions, you're getting them at 45. Now, Detroit gave up the third most passing yards in the league last year, so this was obviously a position of need. And it wasn't a reach. Like, Jameer Gibbs at 12 and Jack Campbell at 18, both of those I'm still scratching my head about. Gibbs is going to be good, and I understand it makes more sense if they are trading away DeAndre Swift, but still. This is branch. This is branch falling. They were reaching on the first two. This one there, he's actually falling into their laps. That was perfect for them. I love the way he plays. Anybody that comes from that Alabama back end is going to be ready to play in the NFL. I think he's going to have that same sort of mentality that Dan Campbell is looking for. He's going to be an enforcer in that NFC North, which is going to be really fun to watch. I know Rodgers is leaving, but that NFC North is going to be one of the divisions to watch in football. Let's talk about the rookie of the year odds in the NFL to close out the show. For offense, we've got Bijan Robinson at plus 350. We've got Bryce Young plus 500. CJ Stroud of the Houston Texans, the second overall pick, plus 650. Real quick about Stroud, I think he's going to be good. I'm not totally worried about the S2 cognition test scores, but I got to say, he has nobody to throw the football to. Um, I mean, his receiving core is just, it, it's terrible. It looks like a junior varsity roster. So Stroud, I would be fading him to win rookie of the year, maybe in a couple of years when they get him some playmakers, but for now, I don't see it. Number four, Jackson Smith, Jigba plus 700. He has a chance. Now I know he's going to be the number three receiver in Seattle behind DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, but Seattle was able to throw the ball with great success last year, 11th in passing yards, fourth in passing touchdowns. And he's somebody that had one of the most productive college seasons ever. He had 1600 yards. A couple of years ago, he didn't play in his final year because of the hamstring injury, but he's going to be an interesting one because Seattle's going to score a lot of points and he could be the benefactor of that. And then number five, Anthony Richardson plus 900. We don't know if Anthony Richardson's even going to start. I mean, I imagine they're going to start him at some point in the season, but as far as the day one starter, we're not sure. He really only had 13 starts in college football. You saw the best and the worst from him. He embodies the duality of man because he has all the physical gifts in the world and he makes highlight real plays sometimes. But at other times, he just looks awful. He can't complete a routine five-yard pass. So I would also be fading him personally. The rookie of the year is about a combination of you need the narrative, you need the moments, and you need the stats. He's going to have the moments, but he's also going to have some awful moments, and I don't think he's going to have the stats. So I would be fading him. I know Robinson's the favorite, but he's the favorite for a reason. I would be picking him to win that one. And then defensive rookie of the year, Will Anderson Jr., plus 350. One of the moves of the draft, by the way, Texans pick second overall, they get C.J. Stroud, and then they trade up to pick third overall, and they get Will Anderson. And you really just set the course of your franchise on both sides of the football. That was that was freaky. That was wild, but I absolutely loved it. Tyree Wilson, plus 600. Jalen Carter, also plus 600. He is my favorite to win this award. And defensive tackles don't usually rack up the best stats if they're not named Aaron Donald. And again, Carter isn't that much of a sacks guy, but the Eagles team defense is going to be so elite. And I think he's going to be able to stand out because the Eagles are going to have a lot of nationally televised games that people are just going to be able to see him more. I could see him winning that award easily, although I do absolutely love Will Anderson. Christian Gonzalez, plus 850. He's going to be really good for the New England Patriots too. Any young corner that gets coached up by Bill Belichick, they're going to be something serious. And then Devin Witherspoon, plus 900. That one's interesting as well because I didn't think Seattle was going to go corner. They already got Tariq Woolen, who was one of the best rookies in the league last year. But now, I mean, you're set, you're set for the next decade with these guys if you can hold on to them. And if Witherspoon pans out, obviously. Guys, that's going to do it for episode number 13 of The Sitch with Grant Mitchell. Leave a comment. Let me know who you guys are taking in these NBA games. And also leave a comment. Let me know which team you support in the NFL so we can talk about your draft picks. But, guys, thank you all so much for tuning in. That's going to do it. And I will see you all on the next episode of The Sitch with Grant Mitchell. Until then, have a great day, and I'll talk to you later.